everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. And before we get started with our show today, I always just like to uh, explain what Alzheimer's Speaks is about because we're always getting new listeners. So um, bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. <clears throat> and we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia that we're able to remove some of the stigmas and fears attached to memory loss and help people continue to live purposely and um, engage lives with with dementia. Um, At our core, we believe collaboration is really the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. And I know that that is working because of all of your clicks and shares and likes um, with with your Twitter tribes, with your Facebook friends, with your LinkedIn colleagues. those those little clicks that just take a couple of seconds of your time have had huge impact. In fact, they made Alzheimer's Speaks the number one influencer online, according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz. So I appreciate your efforts, and um, you know, I pray that you will continue to support us in that fashion because we never know who in our sphere of influence needs this information next. And the more they have in front of them, the easier it is for people to reach out and grab it when they need it. I also want to let people know that um, here on Alzheimer's Speaks, we believe in raising everyone's voice. So if you are a person who is listening who is diagnosed with dementia or maybe thinks that you might have dementia or is caring for someone personally or professionally, um, we would love to hear your story. Um, everybody's voice is very important, as well as businesses, um, advocates, researchers. Um, <clears throat> we've had people in all kinds of creative positions, um, from movie makers and songwriters and authors be on the show. Um, it's it's really just kind of a fun way to express your advocacy, your concerns, and your ideas um, and let the world know about them. And so, um, you know, just reach out to me. Go to alzheimerspeaks.com. And up in the header, there's a big contact button is probably the best way to catch me. I want to give um, a couple of shout-outs to uh, um, a couple of our sponsors. One is FreshBooks, who is doing a free 30-day trial. Um, And all you have to do is go to freshbooks.com forward slash alive. And, um, you know, if you're like me, you always need a little help coordinating your your businesses and, and your financing, and um, Fresh Books is just another alternative uh, to be able to do that. <clears throat> another is Audible, um, and you can, you know, if, if you don't have time to read a book, sometimes it's just nice to listen to a book, and that might be while you're driving or just relaxing or taking care of the kids and doing some multitasking, whatever it might be. Um, <clears throat> but you can go to audibletrial.com forward slash social that's audibletrial.com forward slash social, 
and um, receive a free Audible um, book there to try out. Well, let's go ahead and... um, Get to get to our show today. I'm really excited uh, to have this woman on. I met her with the Dementia Action Alliance. Uh, we were on a committee together, and her name is Mary Ann Sterling, and she is the co-founder of Connected Health Resources, which focuses on person-centered healthcare transformation. And she has been a personal caregiver and a healthcare advocate for her parents for 20 years. She is a renowned speaker and educator on family caregiving issues and um, a role that has involved from her experience has had um, multiple parents struggling with dementia as well. So I I welcome you, Marianne. I'm just so excited to have you on the show today. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming, and hopefully we'll get through my, I got a frog in my throat. I think it's uh, my allergies kicking into gear again. Good old Minnesota weather. I went up to the lake and kind of kicked into gear up there. Um, <clears throat> I want to, um, you know, first talk to you about, you know, how has, has Alzheimer's and dementia impacted you personally? Sure. Well, because I started caregiving in my late 20s, and now have three out of four parents or in-laws who've had this disease. Uh, My life has really been profoundly changed by dementia. I'm 49 now and an only child. Uh, My health, financial stability, career decisions, where I live, these have all been impacted by this disease. I've been on the front lines of caregiving, as you mentioned, for over 20 years, fiercely fighting a healthcare system that is not working with me, and of course, speaking up on behalf of other family caregivers. One brief story I'll share with you um, revolves around five months in 2013 that I spent navigating the Medicaid eligibility process on behalf of my mom. It took multiple interventions by my congressman to move the hurdles that were placed in our way and actually get her into assisted living here in Virginia. Having supported my mom financially at this point for 12 years, I had already given away my retirement only to find myself facing a process that is designed to deter fraudsters, but ultimately has become impossible for honest families to navigate on behalf of our loved ones with dementia. Wow, it's uh, you really have been uh, through the rigors of the process. Three out of four parents, you know, are taking care of is. Um, more than most of us can even imagine. Um, And so the level of impact you've had is um, enormous. And like you mentioned, from financial to your own health and and well-being as well, um, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more as we we talk. Um, You now have a new role on the Advisory Council for a new Alzheimer's patient-powered research network. Can you tell us more about that groundbreaking effort that you're involved in? Oh, I'm happy to, Lori. This is so exciting for everyone impacted by Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia as well. Finally, there's a place at the table for individuals with Alzheimer's, their family caregivers, and the important information we have to share with researchers. So this is a partnership between Us Against Alzheimer's, the Mayo Clinic, the UCSF Brain Health Registry, and the University of Florida. And it's actually funded by 
the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, also known as PCORI for short. So the idea is to accelerate develop, development of effective treatments for Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Our goals are to amplify the patient and caregiver voice in dementia research and broaden recruitment for clinical trials through registries and prevention studies with a special focus on minority recruitment because minorities are so underrepresented in clinical trials. So our emphasis is supporting recruitment of the right patient to the right trial and doing this with virtual and mobile tools. It's also a very unique opportunity to validate the role of the family caregiver as a research partner and study the longitudinal impact of caregiving on the health of Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers. So this is near and dear to my heart. Can imagine, um, imagine that you are. Can you tell us how this group um, intends to um, raise the voice of those with dementia regarding criti- uh, clinical trials? Sure. So for years, uh, it's been very difficult for patients and family caregivers to directly participate in medical research. Um, in fact, it's almost a language barrier, if you will, because the, the language of medical research really isn't the language um, of, the, of the average person. Um, so there's kind of been a barrier there, but we want to break down these walls and bring research to the people and make sure that the important knowledge that, that patients with the disease and family caregivers who are supporting them, um, that that knowledge is, is, is at the table and in researchers' hands. Wonderful. Now, um, you had also mentioned um, specifically about uh, reaching out and getting more minorities involved. And I know that that has just been a hot button for so many have have tried to do that. What are you going to do differently to to try to engage um, the different minorities to get involved in research? You know, we need to meet people where they are, Lori, and I think that's where um, we've perhaps not focused as well in the past, um, but think about it. Uh, minorities and women who are disproportionately affected by this disease uh, also are so underrepresented in uh, clinical trials and in the research process itself, so it is past time that we get them to the table, and we're going to be reaching out in every way imaginable um, uh, uh, in the community, uh, online, um, uh, virtually, on, on mobile devices to reach folks in uh, new and creative ways. Wonderful. That's, that's fantastic to hear. Um, now, is there a, a website specific to this group, or is it too new yet to, to have something like that developed? Uh, well, we're just getting started. This is true. So stay tuned to... Uh, and let's, uh, I'll say this slowly so everyone will be able to hear it. This is the website. It's alzheimerspcprn.org. PCPRN? Yeah. And okay. the PCPRN stands for Patient and Caregiver Powered Research Network. So oh. alzheimerspcprn.org. Okay. Re- okay. I'm just, I'm making that note for myself here. So wonderful. Um, well, that's, that's good to know. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I look forward to, to learning more as we, as we talk today, um, you know, about this and the, the organizations that 
are behind this are just wonderful. I, I love Us Against Alzheimer's and the Mayo Clinic and, and the others that you had mentioned, the universities and stuff. So it's nice to see um, that collaboration going on. As I, as I said in my intro, I think collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle. And um, for too long, we've been, you know, separate silos out there trying to achieve a goal, and we just we can't do it alone. It's it's got to be a, um, a merge um, in efforts uh, to to improve the lives for for those diagnosed and those dealing with dementia. So that's great to hear. Can you tell how people can get involved in? Um, tell us how people can get involved in this type of of research. Absolutely. So first, visit that website that we just talked about. But I've got a couple other action items for your listeners as well. Okay. First, have them sign up on the Brain Health Registry at brainhealthregistry.org. That's the first action item. Mm-hmm. Second, follow my friends at PICORI and PCORNET online and on Twitter. Okay. And can you spell PICORI and so many acronyms in our world Mm -hmm. p-c-o-r-i picori okay picornet p-c-o-r-n-e-t okay okay sounds good um yeah when there's because you can spell things 10 10 ways till sunday and um it is a p and not a b and you know um just with sounds and things so that's good to good to know for people um now when it comes to you know getting involved in the research piece itself um how much work people always want to know how much work is it really going to be at my end to get involved in in a research project You know, this is something that we're trying to um, improve upon dramatically uh, with the new patient-powered research network. Um, Let me give you an example. Uh, The Brain Health Registry is a great place to start because you can sign up quickly and easily online and answer a few questions uh, and take a few uh, fun online uh, brain health tests, and um, it's as easy as that. This is not something that has to be onerous. Uh, and, uh, and painful for patients and family caregivers. We, we want to take the stigma away from this and make it something that um, everyone uh, wants to participate in, on maybe not to help even if they have no um, uh, experience with Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, this can help someone in their family. It can help, uh, you know, a, a friend or loved one, and eventually maybe themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's what's uh, so key too is people don't understand. You know, we can't get a cure if if we don't have any research to base things on. I mean, we're just not going to go forward. Um, we we need individuals to participate in these studies. Um, it's absolutely critical because we're still trying to figure out what causes it, and who's affected, and why they're affected. And um, I know there's a lot of studies out there, too, even, and I don't know if yours will get into this um, as well, but uh, for caregivers, because they're trying to figure out family history, they're trying to figure out what's going on, because right now they haven't really even been able to track, is it, you know, does it run in families, and what are those key key factors? I mean, we've got the, the one that they know about, but 
You know, I talk with individuals all over the world and say, I don't care what they say, it runs in my family because there's just too many people that have that have had this disease. And yet when they talk to the doctors, they're like, well, no, it's, it isn't that type. Well, it, you know, it might not be the type that they know of right now that's trackable, but they're not going to be able to figure that out either if we don't get our butts in there and start helping out with these studies. And um, and helping the researchers out. Um, have you seen an increase or more talk about just kind of the whole hereditary and, and gene aspect of this? Do you do you hear a lot of people say, "I do think it runs in my family," but they're telling me it, it's not that type. You know, we think a, a lot about this at our house, as mm-hmm. you can imagine, because in my husband's family, it's his grandmother and his father, uh, and in my family both parents. Okay. Um, so yeah, we think about this a lot and it's funny. I, I hear probably, um, equal, uh, amounts of discussions regarding, uh, you know, this, this Alzheimer's thing just came out of the blue. No one in our family has it. And then (laughs) the other half uh, about people who are um, convinced that there is a genetic link. So for for me, it's pretty much 50-50. But we think a lot about this at our house, obviously. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, when people say, well, no, it doesn't run in our family. And then I'll ask, well, um, was anyone ever diagnosed with being senile or hardening of the arteries or different things? And they're like, well, yeah. And I said, well, part of the problem is the terms have changed in terms of what we call this disease and how we label it and how we deal with it. And so, um, you know, that's one of the things about being consistent. I mean, so we've made it really hard for researchers to track this thing and for families to really understand it, I think, as well, um, in terms of of some of the overlaps and um, similarities between what something was once called to what it's called today. I mean, even... I, I know there was a big upheaval when they changed the kind of coding from Alzheimer's to mild cognitive. And so people who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's are now told that they've got mild cognitive impairment. And they were just, you know, um, in this big uprage, and rightfully so, because they, they're looking at their doctors going, there's nothing mild about this. My symptoms haven't changed. You've just changed what you're going to call it right now. And so they got really frustrated, you know, with that. And so I think part of that is the, you know, we have to be careful with with when and how we change um, what things are being called and making sure that people are really educated in terms of why we're making some of those changes as well. Um, And like you said, listening to the voice of those that are being affected by this because they want to care more than more than any of us, needless to say, with all of it out there. Um, how does our, our healthcare system, you know, um, need to change to become more dementia friendly? I mean, I could go on and on on this topic. You know, my mom had it for 30 years and I, I thought we were far from dementia friendly. And in the past five years, you know, I've seen some, some great changes, um, and some significant ones, but yet we're, in my mind, we're still so far behind the eight ball. We have a long, long ways to go in my opinion. Yeah, we sure do. And I, I want to comment on your last point, Lori, that language here is so important. It's so important. Um, we have created a very confusing um, environment when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and now, you know, um, part of that is we've, we've learned. Uh, we now know there are almost 100 different types of dementia. Um, that one, a few years ago, just kind of shook me to the core. Mm-hmm. 
when I found that out. And, um, you know, so you're right. We now we have renamed some things. We've recategorized some things. And it is very confusing. But, but language is important. And to your point, my mom actually had mild cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad, who was completely undiagnosed um, to this day, um, probably had vascular dementia because he had many strokes and he had them frequently. Uh, my father-in-law uh, started out with an Alzheimer's diagnosis, and then that progressed, I think is the right word, <laughs> to uh, diagnosis of vascular dementia. So you're right. This is a very confusing world that we live in here. And, you know, on the, good, on the positive side, you know, research has gotten us here. But on the negative side, it's just gotten a lot more uh, confusing yeah. Do you know, because I mean, I have heard uh, from people, you know, because I talk to people all over the world, anywhere from, you know, some people say there's only 30 types, and I've heard up to like 175 types, but I've not found where is there a suppository, or suppository, <laughs> that's not what I wanted to say, <laughs> a depository where, where you can actually find out how many dementias are there. Are they are they coordinated enough to um, to have that in one spot for, for people to be able to access? Because, you know, to me, I think that's a big problem, too. And then you have you have the certain types and then you have all the mixtures, you know, because some people have more than one type or it's or it's flowed into another type and changed. And um, all the doctors are, you know, calling different things at different times. So our, our consistency isn't really good. But I haven't I haven't really found this reservoir of information of where people can find the different types of dementia. Is there one? Do you know? You know, I have yet to find this reservoir as well. So um, if uh, any of your listeners have ideas, um, I'm all ears on that one. Um, I have not ever seen a resource where every single type is listed and described mm -hmm. in plain language so we can all understand it. Yeah, because I think that would be so, I think that could be really helpful for a lot of people, both educators um, as well as medical professionals and family. Um, but even if we just got it to the medical professionals, I think that would be helpful because um, there, I, I, I still believe there's so much education that needs to go on with our um, with our physicians um, at all levels and their nursing staff when it comes to this disease. Um, I, I think there's still so much confusion in terms of how to diagnose. And then once you diagnose, you know, what do people do, you know, with this patient before them? That, you know, just giving them a label and say, you know, here's a med and I'll see you in nine months isn't cutting it for really being dementia friendly and being effective to, to helping them live with the disease, you know, as a whole. Um, you know, and I tell you, one of the roles that I think um, I finally decided over the years that I was perhaps less caregiver and more translator uh, between my parents and the healthcare system. Um, and just an example, um, you know, my mom uh, over the years had seven major falls. So we spent a lot of time in emergency rooms. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, it got to the point uh, in more recent years where, um, you know, a, an ER doc or, or nurse or tech would, would uh, you know, ask the first obvious question, what medications are you taking? Mm -hmm. And you know, I was usually in the ER with her, and it's a good thing because, you know, when when you have dementia, when you have fallen and broken something, 
um, gosh, you know, you're not at your your best, okay? None of us and, are dementia or not, you know? <laughs> and, and then you add that on, and yeah, it makes things quite a bit worse in terms of being able to communicate and focus, which makes total and sense. My job was to be translator. So mom would say, you know, she could come up with one or two of the meds that she was taking, and I would have to fill in the rest. So I, I became the person who helped finish sentences and, and made sure that the entire story was being told. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of, that role became my primary role to make sure that, you know, I was the, uh, I, you know, I, I was the person who uh, bridged the gap between what my mom was able to provide as far as information and what the healthcare system needed. Mm-hmm. And there's a big gap there sometimes, a huge, huge gap. I mean, it, it still amazes me how somebody can be in the hospital, have that diagnosis, and somebody's still giving discharge information, you know, to somebody or leaving a message on the phone saying, I have this, <laughs> you know, and of course they're going, yes, I'm writing this down, but they're they're not able to really do that. And uh yeah, it's 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 really mandatory, and I think physicians um, and clinics as a whole need to really get um, help families get the correct paperwork in order in terms of of sharing that information, especially with our HIPAA laws now. You know, everything's in lockdown, and that stuff needs to be established. I remember with my mom, we used to fax information over to the to the nurse and you know we we got to know um, our doctor's nurse really really well and she was our go-to person and we would get her the information she'd fill in the doctor because he could ask questions pointing to the symptoms we're showing without us looking like the bad guys or going going home having to deal with being the bad guys at the doctor's appointment and and it just makes for you know, a much better relationship and much better service, I think, for the person with dementia in trying to get to the crux of, of what the issue is. Um, when it came to your own family in terms of communicating with uh, with the doctors and stuff, were they pretty open with you or did you have any, any run-ins? <laughs> <laughs> I had frequent run-ins with the healthcare system. I <laughs> Um, I laugh because I'm sort of infamous when it comes to that, but um, it, it's it, it's born out of frustration um, because so many times, um, you know, I could tell you a thousand stories, but some of them that come to mind, you know, um, again, in more recent years, um, uh, my mom had multiple chronic conditions, so I'll focus on her for a moment. Um, you know, I kept a spreadsheet of her medications. Uh, so that I could keep them straight. Okay. Oh, you're good. She was a retired nurse. Heart. She could keep them straight, but I couldn't. So uh-huh. I kept a spreadsheet of this. And um, again, every uh, visit to the ER or doctor's office, uh, I would bring this spreadsheet with me. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, I had uh, very different reactions from people when I would hand them that piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Some, uh, like our, our primary, primary care doc, happy to receive it. Uh, some folks who had gotten to know us in the emergency room, happy to receive it because they knew it was accurate, you know. Yep. But other other folks, um, I remember um, an experience we had in um, a post-acute care facility, a rehab facility. Um, this nurse would not take that piece of paper out of my hand. Uh, she 
grilled my mom about her meds. And mm-hmm. when my mom couldn't recite all of them, she just continued grilling her. She wouldn't listen to me. She would not take that piece of paper out of my hand. I was so frustrated that before I left uh, that facility that day, I got some scotch tape and I taped it to my mom's door, <laughs> her room. Because I was determined somebody was going to look at that thing no matter what. (laughs) But but this is what you go through. And, I mean, as a family caregiver, I often say there are several stages of acceptance of family caregivers. So at first, you kind of have medical personnel that kind of look at you like, all right, you're just a troublemaker. I'm not listening to you. You know, I'm focused on the patient who's who's your parent, right? Mm -hmm. We need to get to a point where uh, patients and family caregivers and medical providers are partners in this. We're we're a team, right? Yep. (laughs) Not someone who makes the rules and others who break them. Yep. Uh, But no, I I was going to relate a story about, you know, what it's like um, on this many occasions that I have joined my mom in the emergency room and um, um, medical professionals seem to have, they go through several phases uh, when it comes to their acceptance of me as the family caregiver, you know, at first they're very skeptical. Um, They kind of look at me like I'm a, you know, troublemaker or, or, you know, someone who's speaking out of turn. And then they realize somewhere along the way when they're not getting the information they need from, you know, my mom, for instance, they start looking at me like I might have potential. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I might be saying something that's actually useful. Uh, and then in the end, they, they come around to the fact that, oh, okay, um, so, so Marianne really is trying to be helpful here and help translate on behalf of, of her mom because she has to. Yep. And they, they finally kind of, you know, get, get a grip on the fact that, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to be a pest. I'm trying to help. So um, it, it's a multi-phase process, unfortunately. Yeah, and and I'm sure they run up against an awful lot of people that aren't trying to do the right thing, and um, and I, I appreciate that. But it's like you can't look at the whole world as as being that either. You know, it it slows down the process. It really gets in the way of a, of a lot of immediate needs, and um, and it causes such conflict and distrust you know, as a whole. So I, it, it would be nice if there was a way to kind of weed that out where um, people really put the person first. And I think that's one of the biggest things that that families can feel sometimes, and not all the time, because there, there are some great uh, healthcare professionals out there as well. But a lot of times there, there's just this distrust, and there's got to be a way to um, build that and um, give that on both sides of the aisle to one another, uh, that you're both really being person-centered, you know, to address that. Um, any ideas on how to change that at all? Oh, one or two. Um, <laughs> really have to completely uh, rethink how we provide care to those with dementia and uh, the family caregivers as well. Mm-hmm. A, we've got desperate family caregivers we show up in hospitals, post-acute care, long-term care facilities across the country, and we find medical personnel who have no idea how to interact with and treat our loved ones with dementia. Worse yet, as we've already discussed, they don't listen to those of us who've been caring for these people for years and years. I think we need mandatory dementia training as part of every medical school curriculum and at all levels 
of, of medical training. Um, nurses, techs, you name it, everyone needs dementia training. Mm-hmm. Envision perhaps a new paradigm in which dementia patients who show up at the ER or at the doctor's office have a separate waiting area where triage and staffing models can be modified to accommodate the challenges faced by these patients. Mm-hmm. Caregiver absolutely must be viewed as a key member of the patient's care team. I mean, let's face it, the healthcare system largely relies on adult daughters mm-hmm. to manage the health of our parents with dementia, and we would be happy to lend our expertise in creating a dementia-friendly healthcare system. Yeah. And and I think that actually, you know, part of it, I, I mean, we definitely need to focus on the medical um, aspect in education, but, but I think it's something we need to get into our school systems as well. I think the general public has to be made more aware of the needs and and the simple fixes for for making things more dementia friendly. I mean, I haven't found anything that um, you can do to help somebody with dementia that wouldn't make life easier for somebody else. You know, it, they're just very common sense type of things that you can use and really multi-purpose and just become more conscious in terms of how we care. And I think we really lost that um, in society as a whole. And, um, you know, I, I go back to um, the day when, when I was a, a young mom and my daughter would come home and, you know, she would she would come home and teach us what they were learning in school. And she was, you know, she was the, you know, the fighting force to get us to buckle up or quit smoking or whatever it was, whatever their mission was or recycle, you know, those little voices have an awful lot of power. Um, if we get to them to help raise the voice in a, in another fashion. So we're hitting adults kind of, um, two sided. Um, and, and I think that that would be a, a great route too. Plus, I, I, I don't know if you've ever gone into the school system, but they're very eager to learn. Very, very eager, and so many of these kids are um, giving care to parents and grandparents and and aunts and uncles, and yet they're shut out. They don't know the whole story, but they really want to help, and they're a very creative um, at a very creative age. And we're kind of shutting that out, which I think is really too bad as well. Um, we are, and I think these kids that you mentioned. I mean, so many children these days have grandparents or parents or an aunt or uncle who have dementia of some sort or other, and wouldn't they be fantastic teachers and ambassadors in our schools? They can teach their peers. Yep. They have learned what they know, and it would make them feel uh, important and, and, and as important, important members of, of the care team yep. uh, and also, uh, you know, allow them to teach their peers. I think that would be a wonderful model. Well, you know, we have so many um, groups in schools from the cultural diversity to sexual orientation to whatever it is. And all these schools, you know, have all these groups, but they don't have one for uh, for kids who are caregivers. You know, or care, and and again, just changing that verbiage from caregiver to care companion or care partner um, puts a different uh, spin on it too. You know, being able to educate them on what that means that, you know, we're all caregivers from the moment we're conceived. You know, this is something we consciously do day in and day out. We don't even recognize it, and you know, we have to become more conscious of our impact on one another. 
And, and I think we've really gotten away from that. And I think it shows in the way the world is right now. It's very disrespectful. It's very disruptive. Um, and, and a lot of times it's just not even downright safe um, because of the lack of care. And so I think we have to get that compassion back in and, um, and allow the kids to be creative. Because when they're creative, again, they will, they will shine and that will help adults realize that they don't, this isn't a bed in a bag, you know, type model. There isn't a magic cure, um, you know, for any of this. And we need creative ways um, to become dementia friendly. And that comes in all different forms because everybody's different. Everybody has different needs. Everybody has different interests. And that's okay to do what you like to do and just, you know, do it um, better or maybe do it a little different uh, to help those with dementia um, be able to participate. I mean, it's really very simple um, in terms of, in my eyes, in terms of how we could change things. But getting to the population um, to buy in, you know, it has to, it really has to come from the heart because nobody wants another task to do. They have to, they have to want to make a difference. And we have to show them um, why it's important because it could be us. It could be somebody we love next. And I'm not a, I'm not a big one to um, use fear, but I think we have to use um, facts both positive and negative, um, to show that impact and that ability to change and, and um, you know, how wonderful the world could be if we got involved. Well, absolutely. And my journey with dementia actually started when I was about 13 years old. Uh, that's when I can, I can look back now in hindsight and say that's when my dad's first symptoms started. Mm-hmm. So I was 13. Okay. And in those days, um, nobody even knew what that was. Okay, we're talking the late 70s okay. here. Yep. Um, there, there wasn't even there wasn't even terminology for this. Oh, it was just somebody getting old and senile, right? So nobody really talked about it. And certainly at 13, I had peers that <laughs> were, were not talking about dementia. But today, I mean, look how far we've come. Now we've we've managed to chip away at at the stigma. And, um, you know, we now, we, we see um, family caregivers and people with Alzheimer's disease on TV. Um, you know, we, 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 we see um, uh, the impact that uh, various uh, advocacy organizations have had. And I think now is the time to, you know, bring kids into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and look how many of them now are caregivers themselves. So it's past time to bring them into the conversation uh, and and make them part of the solution. Yeah, and and they just have such great creative ideas. You know, it's just very, very fun um, to be able to see what they come up with. I had a a little gal on last week by the name of Haley, who's nine, who is um, just doing some amazing work. And she has her own little blog now, and she's helping Max Wallach with a um, delivering puzzles and getting her friends to get involved with nursing homes and visiting all because her grandma has dementia. And it's just, it's so fun to see how she's inspiring others at the age of nine. You know, um, we need to tap more of that in. It'll just make it easier all around for everybody if we allow people to tap into their passion um, and help them get excited. And because it's just, you know, passion's contagious. Um, and it, and it's a positive thing. It comes out of hope, not out of fear. And I think that that's a huge 
differentiation that that needs to really be kept in mind when we're looking at trying to fix this pickle that we're in, um, you know, with our with our healthcare system as a whole and and with dementia specifically. Um, I do want to take some time and hear about what's going on with federal policy and what what is the landscape looking like these days for for those diagnosed and those caring for them. Uh, So there's actually reason for a little bit of optimism on the policy side as well. So um, I I focused, I wanted to talk a little bit today about uh, a couple of pieces of legislation that I'm excited about. And they generally revolve around family caregivers as a whole. Um, So a couple of important pieces of legislation to follow and champion. Uh, We'll start at the state level. Uh, the, this is a mouthful now, the Caregiver Advise, Record, Enable Act, <laughs> a.k.a. the CARE Act, mm-hmm. involves mandatory caregiver education and training and capturing the caregiver's information in the patient's health record. So some, an uphill battle we've been fighting for a long time. This, again, is at the state level. Many states have passed this legislation now, check online to see a list of those that have. And if yours is not one of them, um, you know, make it your business to uh, help ensure uh, that it gets passed in your state. Okay. So um, when they talk about mandatory training, what, what are they thinking that that's going to look like? Well, the idea is that um, uh, before... Uh, someone is discharged from the hospital, we'll use this as an example, that not only a patient but the family caregiver is trained on that person's needs after they leave. So maybe they're recovering from an illness or a surgery. Um, Maybe they have a a chronic condition that um, is out of control. So the family caregiver is then trained on on that person's needs moving forward. What are they going to need at home as far as care and, and perhaps services to assist them. I'd like to get back to your thoughts on uh, this federal policy of the CARE Act and mandatory training. You were starting to talk about you had some concerns like I do on what's that going to look like, even though it's early on. Yeah, now, and, and just a, a, a quick um, uh, edit there. This is mm-hmm. state-level legislation. Mm-hmm. State, so we got to make sure this is passed in every state. But, yes, I share your concerns about how this is implemented. Um and, you know, I'm, it's unclear to me who's going to be looking over the shoulder, uh, shoulders of people like discharge planners and care coordinators um, and, and nurses and, and people who, uh, you know, in theory would be providing uh, this, this uh, training uh, to family caregivers. Um, uh, so the, the jury is still out. Uh, let's wait and see uh, what happens, um, you know, as, as a few months go by and this is being implemented. I'm anxious to see it as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds good. I just uh, hope that it's realistic because so many of the hospitals and clinics themselves aren't trained um, in terms of um, being dementia-friendly. I mean, there's some training going on, but I don't think the true concept is out in terms of – how how do you really engage differently? You know, um, I, I think a lot of the focus still is on the disease itself and not so much engagement in improving um, service delivery as a whole from what I've seen. There's a, there's few programs out there, but I think we've got a long ways to go. And so if we're going to start reaching out to family, those staff definitely need to be trained first um, before we can start reaching out publicly. 
um, with this, unless it's just going to be a brochure that's handed out. So that's, I guess that's my concern with that. Um, but uh, it's a matter because you're right. If it's, if it's just going to be a brochure that's handed out, we're in trouble already. Yep. But this is supposed, this is designed to be uh, literally uh, hands-on training of some sort for caregivers. So caregivers uh, know what they're supposed to do once that patient leaves an acute care setting, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope it comes together like that. And to your point, um, family caregivers can't do what they do without social services to support them. Uh, so that can be anything from transportation to meals on wheels to companion care, you name it. Um, you know, those are the kind of services that can make or break a family. And certainly that's true in my household as well. Yep. Well, and even with um, with families, you know, being able to take the time to do a training, you know, if it's an extra hour, which might not sound like a lot, but when you're already dealing with somebody in the hospital and runs and extra phone calls, and if we don't have a system that supports that so they don't lose their job, you know, that's a whole nother issue to deal with as well. So, I mean, there's just so many angles with this and getting people to participate when they feel time is a premium and they don't, you know, a lot of them won't go to a support group because they can't, they can't do that. There's just no time in the day. So um, there's just so many different angles to look at and approach with this. And is it going to be, again, specific to, you know, whatever caused them to be in the hospital to begin with? Or is it going to be a general training of dementia and how to engage? Or is it going to be a combination of both? will be really interesting to see um, how, that, how that falls into place. Um, so. And, you know, we've got a couple more things on the national scene as well that um, definitely uh, deserve our attention. One is the Credit for Caring Act, uh, which is a caregiver tax credit, just like it sounds, and the Care Planning Act uh, regarding advanced illness care. So these two also demand our attention. Okay. Great. Well, um, in wrapping up here, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we haven't talked about? I have a thousand topics, but we would be here all day, Lori. Okay. okay. Well, we've got we have about five more minutes, so um, why don't you go ahead and pick one and just uh, if you want to enlighten us a little bit on on that in that period of time, because people can always reach out to you afterwards and and uh, connect on their own if that's okay with you. No, absolutely. And something that unfortunately is very fresh uh, at my house is end of life care. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, we have been involved in uh, very recently with my mom. And if there's anything worse than um, uh, the healthcare system in this country, it is end-of-life care. Mm-hmm. Um, to do much better, I think, some of the provisions in the Care Planning Act that I just spoke about um, will, will assist in this regard. Um, but we had um, really a, a tough experience with end-of-life care um, in which everybody failed us. Uh, and unfortunately, um, again, this is very, very fresh and real for us the past few weeks. Um, my mom passed away a few weeks ago, and um, she got the best hospice care that hospice had to offer for the last 21 hours of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a lot of begging and pleading to get that. Uh, and uh, I just feel like we need um, a, a much better process to get hospice in place for our loved ones at end of life. Mm-hmm. And they also need to listen to family caregivers um, who, again, 
um, you know, have been have been caring for somebody for many years, uh, perhaps you know, in our homes, uh, in facilities, uh, you know, in all different configurations. But we we know um, our loved ones pretty well, and um, uh, I would encourage everyone to uh, get involved. Uh, not only with the Care Planning Act, but other um, uh, initiatives that are out there to uh, improve end-of-life care. Um, because until you've experienced this, I cannot um, emphasize how bad it is. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, and it, it's really disheartening when, um, I mean, it's hard enough when someone's, you know, at the end stages of their life and you can't get them good care, you can't get everybody on the same boat. It's um, it's it's more than frustrating and more than heartbreaking. You can't even put it into words. And we really need to educate people on this. I know with my own mom, um, the hospice was good, but the nursing home she was in had a night nurse who didn't appreciate hospice at all. And they were still going in, poking and prodding her constantly and trying to give her you know, enema pain medications, which she shouldn't have even been on, and oxygen, which she shouldn't have been on, and um, and it was cutting into her face. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. And um, I, I was just, like, ready to rip my hair out on this whole thing. It's just like, come on, let her die in peace and, yeah. and comfort. This really shouldn't be that much to ask, you know, especially when you're when you're paying for the services to boot, you know. Um, but I know that there can be a lot of struggle between medical staff and, and even doctors understanding palliative care and hospice um, and when it's when it's needed because of all the changes and stuff. It's really interesting to hear people's stories on this, and I think another area that really needs um, much education. Um, again, some of our word choices I think make it more difficult for families. Um, to understand what's really available and, and what things mean, like palliative care, most people don't even know what that means. Respite, pe- you know, it doesn't say really what it is um, on a on a street, you know, sense for people, and um, you know, just so much of that needs needs more education in terms of how it's paid for and how it's delivered, um, how you even request it, where you go to, um, you know, can you. Can you get a second opinion? All of those things are are very critical. And how do you be an advocate like you were for your mom and I was for mine? Um, you not not always do you have a, a nice face on when you're doing that. You can get pretty stern and um, and pretty mad, um, pushing for the rights of those at, at end of life. So I appreciate what you what you've gone through um, with all of your experiences, and I appreciate your time here with us today. Um, Marianne, what is the best uh, email address for people to, to get a hold of you at? You know, the best address is um, uh, my first initial and last name, so M. Sterling, and that's S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, M. Sterling at ConnectedHealthResources.com. Wonderful. Well, that sounds great, and we do have that posted um, on our show page and on the blog, and um, we also just have the the URL for your um, Connected Health Resource uh, website as well where people can go uh, to get more information. Well, again, I thank you so much, and keep up the great work, and, and please keep us posted on uh, on information as it comes in. We'd, we'd love to talk to you again in the future. Thanks, Lori. I've enjoyed being with you today. Okay, thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.
Um, for those of you that are listening, um, I just want to uh, let you know that uh, last week we did two radio shows. We had uh, Patty Curran, who is the author of um, I Love You, Who Are You?, which was a really fascinating show. We also had Haley Richmond on, who is a young nine-year-old who cares for her grandma, and she has started a blog to encourage other kids to get involved. And she's also um, working um, on delivering some puzzles with Max, Max Wallach, which many of you may know as well. And so she's just she's just brilliant and very fun to listen to with her excitement. Our last Dementia Chats, we had a conversation about dementia and anger, and our next session will be coming up June 14th. But in the meantime, you can go to either alzheimerspeaks.com on our homepage or click on Initiatives and Projects, and you can see that uh, that video. It's also on YouTube. Um, our last Conscious Caring Resources, which is a video um, interview platform, we had Pauline Gordon on talking about vascular dementia. Pauline actually lives with vascular dementia and a workbook that she put together for others to, um, to, to help them through their journey, both uh, those diagnosed and those caring for him. We are going to be having uh, Elon Caspi on uh, Conscious Caring Resources this week, and he's going to be talking about his woodworking project of a brain that is now uh, displayed at the Cushing Center, which is a pretty cool thing. On the blog, we had a couple of great articles, one by Brian LeBlanc in Florida called I Hate You, where he talks about Alzheimer's and his despise for it and how it has affected his life. Another article by uh, Michael Ellenbogen out in Pennsylvania who wrote an article called Include Us. And that is, um, again, Michael is living with the disease, and he just really encourages people to, you know, if you're going to do something to try to fix this disease, to try to improve it, um, please include people with dementia um, on your committees and in your companies because they have great insights. I want to give a shout-out to the Caregiver Alert Center, and that is a place where you can sign up ahead of time and um, input information on a person who you might think may wander. And if that would ever occur, you can contact them and work with the police. They will put together a digital poster and get that out in, in less than 10 minutes, and it's only $15 um, a year. And if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com on our homepage, you can even get it for less than that. In the meantime, our next show will be this coming Friday, and we are going to have the Orange County um, Alzheimer's uh, group on with us, or Alzheimer's Orange County, I should say, with us talking about their advocacy and um, programs that they've got rolling out. So that'll be a great conversation as well. In the meantime, remember to use your memory chip and focus instead of the t- on the task. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? It will change your interaction with those with dementia. Talk soon. Bye now. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525.